morning, good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, or late afternoon, or early morning, or pre-dawn, or post-sunset. When you're talking to a planet, it's kind of hard to think in terms of time zone. We are in something like 193 countries over the Internet. We're on TalkStream Live, so you might want to uh, take a look there. Um, tonight's show is going to be kind of a, an extension of what we did last night. As you know, we were talking with uh, Joe Farrell about uh, some very interesting things that are going on vis-a-vis -vis the moon. There is a German phone company companioning with Nokia, you know, the familiar cell phone maker, builder, constructor, whatever you want to call it. And they are proposing, actually they more than propose, they are actually building and are planning to launch sometime this year, in the next few months, a satellite to orbit the moon which will contain the equipment for a 4G lunar internet network, a 4G telephone system for the moon. And of course, the question that I posed last night and which Joseph and I were both kind of posing to each other is, why is this occurring now? And is it possibly because of the, the kind of, as I call it, the 21st century gold rush of a whole bunch of private companies, nation states, and entrepreneurs who are going to um, take advantage of the riches of the moon, which we will talk about tonight, or even more provocative, is it a network designed to kind of commercialize and bring into the mainstream, into the public white world, as we used to term it, the fact that there have been four decades, perhaps since Apollo, secret bases by somebody probably us, probably humans on the moon, that were not uh, acknowledged, obviously, by NASA, the U.S. government, any of the other governments, but which my guest tonight, my first guest, uh, Ken Johnston, actually seemed to see evidence of in some of the films returned by the Apollo 14 mission. So let's get into it, okay? Uh, Ken Johnston was one of four civilian astronaut consultant pilots in the Apollo Moon Program. Ken is a retired aerospace worker. He served as a U.S. Marine and is a well-known NASA whistleblower. In fact, I would say quite controversial. Ken is well-known because he was a witness to history, to NASA image manipulation, and he saved an archive of early Apollo-era photos that are originals to the time before NASA digitized and created its online database of images, which you can uh, tap into right now. Johnson used a loophole back in 1969, well, probably 1971, to create an original archive, his own archive, when he was ordered to destroy five sets of the 10 by 8 glossy Apollo prints from the Apollo program. And then he worked in the data and photo control lab in Houston during these missions. He saved this set in his own records. And his archive is now prized by researchers, certainly this one, yours truly, and lunar anomaly hunters worldwide because it has been discovered that on that archive, there has been intentional, systematic, physical, and digital manipulation of the NASA imagery online for the media and obviously other scientists to cover up what was actually found on the moon and recorded in the films and photos brought back by the Apollo crews. So before we get to my second guest, which is kind of interesting because he's a kind of a, a, a progenitor of uh, Ken and his work, let me introduce uh, 
Ken Johnson. Ken, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Well, thank you very much, Richard. It's been a while. Glad to have the opportunity to be chat with you guys tonight. Well, this is a really interesting story because when, when I saw this news item uh, earlier, uh, maybe a couple weeks ago, that uh, Nokia and this uh, German firm, uh, whose name I think it's Von something, were planning to put a 4G network around the moon in terms of satellites. It's like, well, why would you do that? Who's there? And you may be the guy with the possible answer to the question. Do you want to tell everyone before we get to uh, to Brett uh, what it is that you saw that kind of stuck in your memory all those years uh, that kind of has triggered this uh, idea that maybe there's somebody else there that's not us? Well, let's, uh, let's drop back to um, uh, 1969 when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. I had... We had just finished all the testing. I was, as you said, one of the first four civilian astronaut consultant pilots, and we had done all of our testing of the LTA-8 um, command mo- uh, lunar module in the vacuum chambers. And once that was all set, and uh, uh, Neil, Buzz, and um, uh, them all, they all went to the moon. I went to New York to visit my wife's family for the first time and get them. Well, and then we got back, and I was all prepared to uh, going into the next phase. And because we had successfully landed on the moon. The president's um, direction to NASA was, well, we don't, we're not going there to um, uh, test and see if we can do it. It's going to be routine missions to the moon. So they went and laid off about 30,000 employees, <laughs> and I wound up going over to the Lunar Receiving Laboratory, where I became the director of the Data and Photo Control Department there at the LRL, all these acronyms. Mm-hmm. And um, so the the that gave me the opportunity as every time scientists from around the world would ask for uh, pictures of where their particular lunar samples came from on the moon and from orbit as well as on the lunar surface. And so they could know the, the, the time of day and the angle of the sun, they can estimate how much uh, solar radiation was impacting on their samples, those type of detailed informations. And I, I of course, uh, in order to, to um, supply them with the information they needed, I developed, the, as I say, the data and photo control department, and um, uh, I took over from Dr. Jeffrey Warner, who had been trying to run it and, and do sample testing himself. But uh, I had like probably 12 or 15 filing cabinets with um, uh, individual folders for every single one of the pictures that had been brought back, as well as I kept files that had the 16-millimeter uh, sequence films, as well as the 70-millimeter Hasselblad pictures that the astronauts took on the moon. This was from all the missions, right? That is correct. Up to, that was Apollo 14 was the last time uh, while I was still connected to the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. And um, my immediate uh, supervisor uh, of Brown and Root Northrop, Bud Laskawa, came in. He says, well, Ken, he says, we need to get rid of all of the extra uh, extra pictures and things like that. And and he says, just just dump them. I said, wait a minute. Those were- Well, well, yeah, your supervisor, you you have priceless imagery taken by the first humans <laughs> to walk on and orbit the moon, and you've got filing cabinets full of them, and yep. he tells you to dump them in the garbage? Well, I what I had done is I, I kept a, a complete set of five copies of every one of the picture things in the files so that when a scientist came in and says, oh, I need a picture of this, well, I could pull a copy instantly. And if I got rather low on those, I could order another one from the photo lab. So you were and, constantly refilling an archive of imagery for scientists so that you could have prints to hand out immediately when the request came in. That's correct. That is correct. So 
what uh, Bud was doing is telling me that I get rid of all but one set. We just need to keep one set on file. And I go, well, can I? Can we send these to some of the universities and their science departments? After all, we paid for them with our tax. He said, no, I want you to get rid of them. And I argued with him a bit. He finally says, I don't care what you do. Just get rid of them and keep one set. Oh, so that my. was the way I took it. <laughs> and I did. I, how, I, how old were you when this all went down? Let's see. That would have been 1969. And I was born in 19. 19- well, no, that that would have been, yeah, right after Apollo 11. No, Apollo 14, so 1971, 72. Huh. So that made me 29 turning 30, okay? Okay. 29 years old, I think. That's all it was. I was born in 1942. You do the math for me. Uh, I'm just trying to remember what, what happened here. So I, I argued with him, and he said, I don't care what you do. Just get rid of them, uh, you know, keep one set. And I took that as, a, you know, tacit approval. I um, I took three sets, and I dumped them in the Dempsey dumpster, and, and you may run into one of the young lady um, uh, people from uh, NASA's days that did find those in the uh, dumpster, some of them, and, and kept a few of them herself. But, um, I'm still shocked kept- by the idea that a NASA supervisor would tell you to dump these priceless, incredibly historic, uh, once-in-a-lifetime images in the garbage. I totally agree with you. And, and when and- you asked him, university, teachers, libraries, and he said, no, get rid of them, I mean, that's – that's incredibly yes, I, suspicious. It was. I, I put three, three sets in the dumpster. I kept one set as a control, and the, uh, the, the fifth set I kept for myself that I'd been kind of building up and keeping a copy as we went along over the years. And uh, these were originals. These were even better than what you would get if you ordered and requested one because these were made from the original negatives. And, um, so, so they're like what we would call first or second generation copies. Absolutely. If you're calling it is the first generation print, but then it's actually the second generation copy being one from the uh, the original negatives. So those were in my archive and in my files. And then although history of go, you don't want to go through all that, it's in my um, uh, autobiography book, um, uh, Ken's Moon. People want to go and get all the background history. But yeah, we actually from- have yeah, actually have a cover of that up on the other side of midnight. If you go to the other side of midnight dot com and click on the graphic. For tonight's show, that will take you to your page. Scroll down under Ken Johnson's Seniors Items, and there's the cover of your book, Ken's Moon. Wonderful. Okay. So, um, at any rate, there was, I believe this was about 1995. There was someone that came to Seattle, Washington, was giving a lecture <laughs> and a talk there. Now, there, you have to understand, though, there, there were a group of us there at the Boeing Company. Oh, that was the whole the rest of the story is once we uh, had finished landing and they, they, they laid a bunch of us off, I decided it was time to get out of the space program and get back into aviation. And so I went to work for the Boeing Corporation and became a flight instructor for the um, on the 737s for Boeing. But anyway, uh, so a group of us, we jokingly called ourselves the, the Majestic 12. I don't know where that came from. Mm. But mm. at any rate, um, that particular night, one of my friends called me. He says, oh, by the way, um, the guy we've been following on the radio and everything uh, by the name of Richard Hoagland, I believe, and uh, <laughs> he was giving this talk, and I said, oh, great. It'll give me a chance to take his book down and maybe get his autograph. So that's what I did. I typed up a little letter of introduction. I went down to to the Space Needle, right close to where you were giving your talk, and went in, and um, I, I didn't have to teach that night. I was off um, flying. So I walked in and spoke to the young lady in the front. I said, oh, I, I'd like to give this letter to uh, Mr. Hogan so he'll, because he's asking if there anybody that has any records or any information. She takes my my letter. She's reading it, and she's, her eyes got huge. She, looked, she says, don't move. You're who we've been looking for. 
And I thought, oh, my gosh, I am in some kind of trouble because if they're looking for me, I'm in trouble. In a few minutes, it was you. You came out from front, and you looked at the letter, and you looked at me, and says, come on front, sit on front row. We're going to talk later. So that evening, we talked a little bit, and I explained to you what um, what I had as far as the archives concerned and made, made arrangements. I don't know how you guys managed to get up that early, but uh, you were at my place <laughs> like 7 o'clock in the morning. You and Well, come on, months. Ken. Christmas came early that year. <laughs> and so, at any rate, that was, that was fantastic because I, I, I had a huge safe, uh, several thousand pounds, because I was going to be sure if anything happened that these would be safe. And um, we, we, I'd pulled everything out, out of the living room, and you guys were going through things. And all of a sudden, my wife says, what's this thing in, in the visor, this astronaut there? And we all got to look at, my God, it's, it's, it's a craft up uh, above where they are. So we, we coined the idea, if you really want to know what NASA didn't want you to know, look in the visor of the astronauts being photographed. Yes. And so you could see that, that up there. Okay, well, so as, as history and time, went, oh, here's the main thing. And, and it was your idea, and I really appreciate that because it's coming to my advantage. Because um, we, we suddenly have uh, targets on our back. Well, you said at the time uh, we need to get you made known publicly because some things have been happening to people that maybe have information that we want to be able to make available to the people in the world. So in a matter of the next week, you were scheduled to go to Washington, D.C., to the National Press Club, and you guys made arrangements for me to fly there. Oh, the other thing was I had left one set uh, of those of those five. Three were in the dumpster. One was kept for them. One I sent to my my uh, alma mater, Oklahoma City University, and the other one I had kept for myself. So I we flew me to Oklahoma City right after the um, uh, the bomber had blown up the big building there in Oklahoma City. So I was able to retrieve the majority of my archive that that bull archive that was there, including the sixteen millimeter. Um, for films as well as uh, 70 millimeter Hasselblads, which have really come into tremendous help. And um, our friend uh, Brett Shepard will tell you about those shortly. Anyway, uh, so back to there, we flew to Washington, D.C., and we put on a, um, uh, a program there. You had several other um, insiders that were coming forward. And the whole point was if you can make us well enough known, then we're safe, much safer. Because if something were to happen to us, everybody, the Whoever did what they did to us would have to explain why we were uh, killed, why we, we died of an instantaneous disease of some sort. And so I've been hanging on to that for the last, what, 35 years, 40 years? It uh, hasn't been is, that long. Good grief. I hate to say it, but it is true. So uh, let's spring forward. Um, I decided it was time that I needed to put out my autobiography and uh, make these pictures and things available. And uh, I had been getting on the internet, uh, Facebook, and wound up chatting with a person by uh, uh, Brett Shepard and uh, Karen uh, uh, Christine Patrick uh, in their area and was telling them about what I was wanting to do. And uh, I knew that they were working on helping other people put together their, their books. And we had become good friends chit-chatting. And Brett had said things about – he was questioning a few of the things that have, had popped up. And I told him, I said, well, take a look at what I have in my archive. And it didn't take but just a, one or two shots and him looking at the quality of pictures. Now, by the way, all of these pictures were kept inside of plastic um, document protectors, which has maintained their um, clarity. They, they haven't, haven't aged or yellowed very much at all. Well, the really important thing is they were kept in the dark. <clears throat> 
So, That's true. so there was no – see, every time you take a photograph, for folks, you know, the millennial age that doesn't know about photography, it's a, all a chemical process, and you got a piece of paper with a picture on it, and there's chemistry, and it's supposed to be fixed, meaning the development of the image has stopped because of putting in chemical baths or solutions – Actually, that's not quite true. If you have a color photograph or a black and white photograph, and the longer you keep it in the light, the development still at a very low level continues. And that's why photographs fade and yellow and turn weird colors and the dyes change weird colors. And so you're keeping these priceless historic images that, again, you were ordered by NASA to destroy in the dark all those years, decade after decade really save priceless information, which if I can pick up a, a little thread on the story here, you let me borrow a few of these prints and I took them back to uh, Weehawken, which is where we were at the time. And I scanned them and I looked on the computer and I was stunned because the electronic scanners, state of the art, 1995, on these decade old NASA prints were able to look down into the black levels and bring up detail in the sky, in the vacuum above Ed Mitchell, putting up a TV camera in one of those famous pictures. And there's this stunning gossamer geometric filigree of light, of geometry, of structure, of architecture in the vacuum above the moon that for the first time, Ken, on that photo that you had in that archive was made incredibly crystal clear and we showed that at the National Press Club, and I think we changed from that point on the entire lunar conversation. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. So, at any rate, I guess the, the best thing to say is when I talked to um, Brett and them, they were saying that they were getting ready to leave Texarkana and go up towards uh, Seattle, Washington, where um, um, Karen's uh, daughter was, a, was there, and uh, something had happened to their vehicle, and then they couldn't get it to – uh, be fixed. They took it to a mechanic. The mechanic put it up on the left, and he says it's going to cost you this many hundreds or thousands of millions of dollars at the time. And they they couldn't even come up with that. And he said, "Well, we we're just going to leave everything and and take a, a a train to Seattle." I said, "Well, there's another option. The other option is I've got a a, a nice big um, Ford F three fifty, and um, I've got a great big long flatbed trailer. Why don't I come get you and bring you down here to um, uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico area?" And they said, really? And so I said, I'll be there in uh, 24 hours. And that's exactly what I did. I went, I helped them move here. They were, uh, and we found them the next day. We found them a place to, to move into and live. And then uh, six months later, they moved up by the, uh, the, the Boeing airport and not Boeing, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> Berlin. I jokingly call it the Berlin international airport because at night, sometimes there's illegal people that fly in and out of the airport. I think But anyway, they lived there for over a year and now they're in um, silver city in New Mexico and they're getting all kinds of support at that place. But that's where we got to the position uh, of working together. And basically I had, I adopted Brett and Karen and we became known as the, the a team. And uh, we got the first book out mine out. He's got his uh, book or two out. Karen's got her books out and they're also working on uh, radio programs. Um, Karen does. I can't think of the names of them, but Richard can tell you those. And uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful relationship because, um, they helped me coordinate, get everything together for my autobiography. And then a little bit later this evening, we can talk about some of the, the other things that we have not talked about up to this point, things that may connect and tie into 
whether we are the only or the last people, uh, should say humans um, in the universe. I don't think we're alone. And now for the first time, I'll be coming public and discussing what has happened in, in my life, as well as I know what happened in, in Brett and Karen's lives, too. So there have been some things that even you haven't heard yet. <laughs> well, I love surprises. <clears throat> okay, well, without further ado, let's, in, let's bring uh, Brett on. Brett Colin Shepard was born in Gary, Indiana on September 17th, 1966. Brett's been through an extraordinary amount of childhood trauma, which obviously we need to get into in some of that, I guess, and an early ET abduction by benevolent ETs, um, stay with us folks, come on, helping him through this trauma. Now, during his childhood, he was taught esoteric knowledge from various books given to him by members of his mother's friends and cult members of various organizations. He was groomed as an artist by a beautiful Nordic woman named Eno, who worked at the time as a caricature artist for Playboy magazine. She taught Brett all about perception and how to draw what he sees in nature. Shepard experienced a time anomaly where his anomalous finds from the future were shown to him in an art class in high school. Whoever did this time mission also knew that Brett had a photographic memory. So years later, he felt compelled to pursue looking for anomalies in NASA images of the moon and Mars. Brett is known in the anomaly community for some of these finds, the lunar Acropolis, the Jupiter 2 UFO on Mars, and the Lion of Sidonia. He's writing a book on his anomaly finds, plus what he has found deconstructing the manipulation of photos from space by the official agencies. His current book is called Flyover Siakowski, from the base on the moon seen by Ken Johnston, um, which Ken's going to, of course, describe. His latest book is Digital Moon, published in August of 2017, about the processes of the CGI and other methods used by NASA and the other agencies to obfuscate the actual anomalies that are there. Plus, Brett in this, in this book uh, describes his extraordinary journey, his personal experiences, as he was shown the future at 15 years of age by an agency operative of the government. Brett went on to found the Lunar Anomaly Research Society, revealing what he has discovered in the images. He is also involved in groundbreaking research involving ancient cultures and the matriarchy led by the graphic divination of lunar and other images. And that is all a mouthful. Brett, welcome to the other side of midnight. Well, uh, thank you, Richard. I'm happy to be here. Get just a little closer to that mic, okay? Okay. How's so, this sound? Still, it sounds great. Now, you guys, it sounds to me like there's some kind of almost hyperdimensional bond. I mean, something brought you together because Ken's got a background as an engineer. Although you do have a doctorate as a Baptist minister, isn't that true? Well, I think that really falls back over on me, uh, Richard. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the things that happened, um, actually, it happened after the um, uh, which one was it? Oh, the the uh, space shuttle disaster. Um, first of all, my cousin Don Garrett was a captain in the in the Air Force, and he was one of the the original ones who was part of the Air Force. Uh, space program, and it, when Wednesday the budget canceled that, he went to Houston. Was the liaison between NASA and the Air Force, and that was Captain Don Garrett. Well, uh, whenever the the, um, the Apollo, the very first Apollo uh, 
disaster happened on the launch pad because Don had been in there setting all the switches up when he, when he stepped out and um, the, the three astronauts crawled inside and uh, he tapped them on the head and he got on his little jet and was flying back to Houston. He got the word that there'd been a fire and they'd all the three died. Well, he, he stepped away from that, uh, turned in his commission and became a Baptist minister in Colorado. Well, that goes back a long ways into my upbringing and, and all where even whenever I was uh, with the, the Baptist church there in Hart, Texas, and I was felt the calling to become a, a minister. Well, um, and, and after baptism, I was given the, the full books and the whole training. And I had the opportunity to get with an organization that started off to, um, to be the Reformed Baptist Seminary uh, in Denver, Colorado. And they, they were legitimate at the time that I applied, and I, I did uh, what was required there within the church to become um, a doctorate of theology. And, of course, later that they kind of went to giving anybody who said that they wanted to be a minister and they wanted to be a doctor, they, they gave them a certificate. And, of course, then the, uh, the debunkers started jumping all over that, oh, well, you can't call yourself a doctor or a Ph.D. I said, I never said I was a Ph.D. It was just a <laughs> doctor of theology. At any rate, that's, that's sort of the history. Well, see, the that. interesting to me is that, you know, as, as a straight engineer that I knew when I first met you, you had yep. this interesting metaphysical background that obviously related and resonated with, with Brett and his extraordinary experiences. Look, we've got about uh, uh, four minutes till the bottom of the hour. So I want to get more into Brett's background when we come back. But Ken, I want you to talk about what you saw on the films that we're going to talk about somewhat for the rest of the evening, the whole Siakowski business. Oh, I'd love to. Um, now, Dr. Thornton Page, whom some people can research and find out, he he was the, the director of the uh, Lunar and Planetary Science Department just right off the back uh, entrance into uh, NASA Johnson Space Center. Um, he and I had worked together and I'd gone over to there and watched a few of the films and the, some of the doctorate things they put out. He, he contacted me and says, Ken, go to um, the photo lab and check out the Apollo 14 film number XYZ, whatever it was. And he says, set up a showing for me and, and seven of the other scientists because I want them to see this this particular film. Well, I, I did as I was told, checked it out, set it up. And you want me to go into just a little quick detail or just leave it at that? Yeah, I just, can tell just, you. just kind of leave it at that and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll hit on that because that's one of the things that Brett has, has uh, worked on in, in terms of his current book, Flyover yep. of Siakowski Crater. Let me add in here that if it hadn't been for Brett, because I've been telling the same story so many times over and over and over, and it's just been my word over um, the debunkers until Brett went to work and he found some of the other missions that flew close enough to Tsiolkovsky to verify the things that I'd been saying for three decades. And now I have someone that said, back me up and has got the information to prove it. And thank God he's with us now. <laughs> Okay, well, look, everybody hold it there because we're at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are Ken Johnston and Brett Shepard, and uh, we're going to bring Brett on to give us a kind of a, a background because it seems almost, if you want to you know, get into the whole metaphysical thing, it seems like you guys were, and I'm going to use terms that are going to disturb some people, destined to come together, destined to work together to bring out a larger truth about an extraordinary American engineering experience, which has so many other implications in so many other dimensions. And so tonight I have two of the perfect people to relate this synergy between <clears throat> science and metaphysics in terms of what we really found on the surface of the moon. 
So everybody <clears throat> kind of hold it there. Um, you're on the other side of midnight, everyone. My guest this morning, as I said a moment ago, is uh, why isn't this playing? This is weird. There's nothing playing through my system. That's not a good idea. That's not good at all. Hmm. Okay, so we'll just go straight to a break. And when we come back, we will return to Ken Johnston and Brett Shepard and the most extraordinary moon um, investigation that you've heard of in a long, long time. You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5. Literally, 
the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. back on this Sunday night. My guest this morning, Ken Johnston, Brett Shepard. What I want to do, Brett, is I want to go to you because, you know, most people don't realize, but once you open this door to the idea that there is something else out there besides humans prowling around in an engineering project in the 1960s and 70s called Apollo, once you get the idea that the human race is kind of bigger than we think it is and there might be cousins and there may be other dimensional beings and who knows what. Your experiences become quite relevant because apparently, and we're going to hear the details in the next few minutes, you had a preview as to what you were going to be doing in the 21st century when you were just a teenager. And I want to you know, not abbreviate the story because I think the, the, the grounding in why you had an insight into what you would become and where you would go, boldly where few have gone before, is very important to this evening conversation. So, Brett, why don't we back up and, and tell me about these experiences that led you to ultimately work with Ken Johnson? Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, well, for starters, I, was, uh, I, I had founded the Lunar Anomaly Research Society in hopes that I would find other people that were um, investigating these lunar anomalies and, and finding some of the stranger aspects of them. And so that I didn't alter perception, I didn't tell them my background or about the story in hopes to find some of other people that were seeing the same things I was in these images. Um, a lady named Amy Evans came into the group, um, and this leads into meeting Ken and all, and she said that, that she was working with Ken Johnston, and that, that she had an image that she wanted to show me that's a Mars image that isn't typical of the group, um, but she would really like me to see it. Well, this is the exact same trigger image that was shown to me by Stanford Research Institute, a lady named Zamina Zarito in my art class when I was 15 years old in 1982. The exact identical same image. What's interesting about that, as you might know, is this particular Mars Orbiter camera image wasn't taken um, out in space until 1997, and it wasn't released to the public till 2001. But it was shown to me in 1982. Now, wait a minute. Someone yeah. at the Stanford Research Institute in, what, Palo Alto, California? Yes. Showed you a hard copy image of a structure on Mars that would not be made public for decades. That's correct. Wow. So, you know, um, they, I remembered this image because I have a photographic memory, so it, it clicked immediately. And I started looking at all of the lunar orbiter and Mars orbiter camera images because they're the older ones. They're 
60 miles up in space. And, and I knew NASA really didn't care too much um, about those because it didn't show too much surface detail. Now, when, it, when she showed me that image, it triggered a, a series of ideas that I had um, into looking at the process of, of building these images, how NASA actually made the images. And I realized that the lunar orbiter um, mission, you know, that was trying to find a, a landing spot for the Apollo missions. We're talking about the lunar um, orbiter I, unmanned spacecraft series built by Boeing. Boeing can yes, um, and, yes, and, and, exactly. and managed out of the Langley Research Center over in over in Virginia, south of Washington D.C. This is back in the yes, 1960s, 66, 67. Right. Yeah, and these these particular images were not were not produced by humans. They were actually produced in space and sent as data on tapes to to back to well, wait, let, 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 wait, hang on, let, let's clarify that because they were produced by humans. Right. They just were not taken by an astronaut looking out a window taking a picture. This was an right. unmanned spacecraft, solar powered, with a camera inside that was built by right. the iTech Corporation in Massachusetts, which was our senior spy satellite uh, uh, contractor back then. They had built right. the, the same cameras for the top secret project Corona images we're going to talk about a bit later. <clears throat> and what NASA did was to take this extremely classified spy camera, put it in a spacecraft, <clears throat> send it to the moon, and in lunar orbit, it actually took pictures on film. The film was then electronically scanned in lunar orbit and then it was radioed back to Earth line by line. The spacecraft right. in lunar orbit ultimately crashed on the moon, destroying the spacecraft and the film and all that. But the archived images on Earth have been now reproduced in several different forms, up to including a private effort called LOIRP, which has produced stunningly clear digital versions of these actual original analog images taken on film in lunar orbit by the iTech camera in the lunar orbiter. So you saw those pictures uh, at, at that time, right? Yes. I, I saw um, basically um, the clips of those images in 1982 that were shown to me on a screen, but under the context that they were done by different artists. So they were represented as art as opposed to actual imagery? Yes. That's weird. That's correct. Yeah, that's that's a perception thing because Stanford Research Institute was all about perception. So you know that these these particular images um, haunted me all of these years. You know, so I, I developed this research society in hopes that other people would see these things, and they literally can't see them. So wait, 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 wait. You're you're shown these pictures in '82, and they're you're not told they're actual images of the moon. Right. That's correct. Or just, Mars. Yeah. You're just shown these images and you're asked to what respond to them in terms of some kind of psychological or, or, or um, perceptual artistic experiment. Yes, exactly. Right. Now, what did and you some see? Of, some on, of, yeah. Hang on. Hang on. What did you see on the images that troubled you? Um, what I was seeing was um, what looked like uh, old men on tricycles. I, I saw. Um, gods and goddesses. I, I saw um, dragons coming out of a cave with some kind of Conan guy. I, I, I saw all of these things perceptually in these images. And she even 
uh, them. She said, well, what do you think about that? That one's really risque, you know, to go into detail. So uh, this is kind of like a celestial Rorschach test. Yes, exactly right. Almost like a divination, almost like, like, like there's, this is graphic communication by some kind of extraterrestrial. So were you seeing, were you seeing things in the images or did the images trigger internal visions or, or, uh, you know, impressions that you then related to the images you were shown? Oh, no. Oh, they were, it was identical to the stuff that I found 35 or 40 years later. So this, these, these were things actually on the images you saw and, and, and your, 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 your teacher, your professor, whoever this woman was, she saw the same things or some of the same thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, 40 years later, I'm looking at these things and um, I'm, I'm trying to colorize them to trying to show people. No, wait, what when you I'm say seeing. 40 years later, you're looking, you mean you're looking at other lunar pictures taken by what source? Right. I didn't, I didn't realize they were from NASA. So I, I, start, I, I started looking at that one image that Amy Evans showed me, which is probably related to Nancy or the astronaut Evans. And, and she, she, she said, now look at it real carefully or whatever. It was a big point for her to show me this thing. And I started looking at, at other images, lunar orbiter images and Mars orbital camera images and seeing all kinds of token-esque type of uh, dated 60s artwork in there. No, wait, when you, you, know, know, you passed over that quickly, you mean Tolkien? Tolkien-esque? Yes, J.R. Tolkien. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the same style of uh, uh, dated artwork, you know, kind of like the old uh, Bilbo Baggins cartoon, that sort oh. of thing. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really dated art that's in these images. It's a very unique style, and it's unforgettable, you know, to me anyway, as an artist. So you didn't and, know at the time you're seeing this, even 40 years later, that these were NASA images. You just saw art in the images you were being presented with. That's correct. And and I started seeing, uh, the interesting thing is the, the images that I saw in 1982 were colorized, just like I do now. And... Um, the, the images, um, the identical embedded image that's in these lunar orbiter and Mars orbiter camera images are black and white. Right. But they're very photorealistic to me. Hmm. Okay. That's a very strange aspect of these images, yeah. So continue. Um, anyway, um, Amy Evans showed me that image and, um, and it kind of said Ken's in the background. So he, he was kind of like my unseen father figure, you know, in the background. And um, about a year later, wait, wait, wait. Donna I'm, here, I'm, I'm confused again. What do you mean he was in the background? He was kind of watching the, the group, you know, the Lunar Anomaly Research Society. And kind oh, of so, he's, so, so he's physically there with this group and you're looking at these images and he's just kind of being quiet in the corner watching you guys respond. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, so about a year later, uh, I, I started looking into to his particular story. Um, I saw the Smithsonian video where he was just well, wait, wait, describing. Let me ask you this. How did Ken and you get together with this group? Was this when he brought you to Albuquerque? Oh, I had thousands of people in that group. So that it was just a bunch of people in there. And so, Amy had, had so, told so he had just he, att he just attended one of these meetings because it was Lunar Anomalies. And you didn't know his background, but he certainly knew what you were looking at. Exactly. It's okay. just a Facebook group. So every, you know, bunch of people join and all that. I, I think the important thing here is that it, this was all 
done on the computer, not that we were physically oh, together. Oh, see, see, this is a kind of confusing because right. we we're, were jumping back and forth in time between Stanford and 82 and then 40 years later, and so I'm trying to keep the timeline right. straight, all right? Linear Welcome storytelling is very well. Linear storytelling helps, you know. Oh yeah. Um, okay, so about. So you guys all have this face group group, okay? And Ken is simply participating right. via Facebook, and you're looking at images and you're talking about them like Facebook groups do. Then what oh. happens? Okay, then uh, about a, a year later, into the you know um, do, doing this group and you know people um, posting their anomalies and all that, Donna Hare comes to me in, in, a, in a chat window and and she said, would you like to see a real NASA image? Hang on, that hang on, has not hang on, been hang on, touched up. Hang on. Ken, who's Donna Hare? Donna Hare is one of the, the people that I've discovered, you know, in the past, oh, not, not more than the past three years, um, that actually found some of those pictures that were dumped in the Dempsey dumpster. Ah. And... That was what she showed uh, to to Richard, uh, not Rich, excuse me, <laughs> to Brad. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, he can pick up from there because he dealt with her for some time before I think he made the connection between her and me. So and wait, wait, you need to give Don his background. She actually worked at NASA apparently oh. when you worked at NASA in Houston. Yes, yes. That's in a critical fact, piece of glue in storytelling. Remember, don't leave no, out pieces. Thank you. Let me let me throw this part in here real quick. When um, I finished up showing. The, the film and stuff to uh, Dr. Thornton Page and all and checked it back into the photo lab. Um, when I went into the photo lab set up in three different areas. F first area, you can come in, you can request a picture and they would get it for you and bring it to the front bar and you'd check it out. So we've yours. now gone back to 1971. Correct. And then um, uh, you, you um, then you could go inside where if you're cleared with a, a, a proper clearance, you could have the, the equipment material and you can, do your analysis and looks and things you want there. And then they immediately take it and put it back in the third area, which is storage. Well, I hang I on, hang on. Let, let me stop you there. Yep. NASA was billed as a civilian space agency. Yes. Astronauts went to the moon as part of a civilian Kennedy program to land and bring back stuff and all that, and to share it with all of mankind. You're yes. telling me that you needed security clearances to go in some buildings looking at photographs brought back from the moon. What the hell was in the national security to keep those pictures secret? Well, you know, we were so excited about being cleared. We never really thought about the fact that, that the common, common everyday people might want to go straight in and check things out. So, well, think uh, about this. What, do was, what was classified about the damn Apollo lunar pictures unless there was something there that was not supposed to be revealed to the Russians, to the Chinese, to the to the whoever, and certainly to the American people. I mean, that right there is a huge blinking red light. Something's wrong with this story, the it NASA is. story. Unless unless you're you're so busy working day by day and event by event and creating what was needed to to accomplish each mission and each phase of it constantly, and you would see something that kind of clicked and said, "Well, I got to look into that later." But they kept us so busy that we couldn't take the time to go to it, and then we get laid off and we don't have access. Okay, but now with the advantage of hindsight, decades of hindsight, you realize Absolutely. how incredibly anomalous and how paradoxical it is to have buildings classified on a NASA research center, you know, the Houston Space Center, where ordinary people couldn't go in and look what their damn taxpayers' dollars paid for. That's right. And that, after I got through showing that film of Hall 14 to um, Dr. Thornton Page and his, his minions, um, and I checked them back in. 
I, I was checking, excuse me, I was going over the lunar receiving laboratory and I ran into Dr. Page and I said, um, I had, well, I don't want to go the whole story right now, but I, I had, we had discovered something on the backside of the moon and I asked him, you know, what happened to it? Cause it wasn't on the film that I showed the next day. And he winks at me, said there was never anything there, but those are the type of things that happened, but we were so busy. We didn't get a chance to check them. So now we, we fast forward to where we're back up to people like, like uh, Brett Collin that now they're going into research and then they, they, they want to see something and they take a look at some of these, the archive, my archive pictures and things, and they can discover some of the things that we weren't supposed to see. The images you were told to destroy. That is correct. Okay. Brett, back to you. Brett, unmuting helps. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, yes. So back to Donna Hare, and, and she's, she's uh, posting this cool image, you know, of um, it's Apollo 12 of Alan Bean on the moon with Surveyor 3, and the lem is in the background. And she, she said, do you notice anything funny about that picture? I said, yeah there's a background there's it's not blackened you know first of all and uh, second of all the the focus range on the camera was focused on the limb not on the astronaut in the foreground okay. now, may i jump in here for a second when i check the film back in richard um and i got into the middle section there were there was a light table about three foot by four foot in diameter with the light shining through an opaque glass and they had negatives um laying on top and they were busy this is one of the buildings where you had to have security clearance to go into on the uh, houston manned spacecraft center campus to get into the the second and third level areas but out front you know people could come and didn't have to have the clearance at any rate so i was um i'm still boggled by the idea that there was any part of <laughs> apollo that was classified i mean this is stunning that, that news. was building eight yeah, this is this, this is astonishing eight. news, guys, and most people don't okay. realize it because NASA is supposed to be a civilian space agency carrying out a civilian program, Apollo, and you're telling me there were tiers of security where you had buildings you could enter, anybody could enter, and then there were other buildings in the back where there was other photographs and negatives and light tables and there were artists and experts doing things to the photographs that the American people were not supposed to know about. Does that ring like something like a secret space program? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let me finish real fast there. Uh, these these three people were there, and they were they were painting things out on the horizon and stuff. Well, but that. they were what? They were look. They what they had done is they had enlarged a a negative or, or a picture negative to eight by ten, and they were very carefully painting things out on the surface and and on the horizon mostly. And I asked them, "What in the world are you guys doing?" One of the the men's very quickly quipped. He says, oh, well, we're professional strippers. The woman, in which I, I think, and, and um, now you, you tricked me up here. Um, no, that, that was not Donna here, Ken. Don't say I that. I know. That okay. Wasn't. I won't say it was her. Okay. All right. But All right. Let, let, me, let me stop you guys, because when I took a, a team of eight people into the National Sci Space Science Data Center at Goddard, where all of NASA's data, its archive records, its telemetry, it's radiation, it's seismic, everything, all the photographs is all stored at NSDC outside Washington at Goddard. I took a team of eight people, including some photographic experts, and we have a whole bunch of pictures, huge pictures, 16 by 20s laid out on a table, and the head of the NSDC is going through these images with me, and I'm pointing out to him, this is the head of NASA's archive of all of NASA data, I'm pointing out to him where the sky on the lunar images 
has been blacked out. So you can't see what's really in the sky above the moon. And you're telling me that at a separate NASA center, a decade or two before, you actually saw the people doing the blacking out on the NASA imagery that we all paid for. That is correct. And later, as I said, uh, Donna says it, it was a very good friend of hers that was part of these threes. And when I said the guys quipped and said, you know, we're professional strippers and we're painting these out, she, she said, well, no, we're not sure what we do. Our job is we're trying to paint out things that would be confusing to people with it looking into the sky, you know, the, in the heavens or above the moon and right on the, on the horizons. At any rate, I, 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 that was a little too much. I went in, I checked in the film there and, and came out. And that's when I ran into Dr. Page and asked him what happened to the the, the, the domes that we saw in Tsiolkovsky Crater. And that's when he told me that there was never anything there. Well, it had been painted out. And we found out that later. And Brett's going to do a good story. I'm telling you just exactly how we, he proved that what I said was true. Wow. Okay, back to Brett. So you've got this Facebook group. You, Donna Hare is showing you an image as part of the group and saying, look at certain things. You see it. You see the focus is different than we all thought it was back in the, in the, in the mainstream world. What did you see that triggered your your deep interest? Um, one of the things that I saw was was the background was of course not blackened out, and you know we we've seen over and over again they've done it to every image where there's no lunar sky. Um, Donna also showed me a picture of the paperclip anomaly that you were talking about with Keith Laney quite a long time ago, and in, in the area that you called Los Angeles. Uh, the, um, in the, sinus, the, the, sinus Medi. Yeah, the yeah. Ukert area in the front side of the moon in Sinus Medi, yeah. Yeah, so there was a paperclip anomaly, and Donna said that she remembers her Ex friend painting that out. Explain what we mean by paperclip anomaly. Um, this little paper, it looks like a paperclip, but it's a, it, it's sticking out of the lunar surface, and it's huge because this area is huge. So this this little anomaly that looks small in the image is is actually, you know, a good 100 feet high. And it's got a, it looks like a giant big antenna. Well, I have a little different interpretation. And without the image, we probably don't want to get lost down that canyon. But yeah, we don't. An okay. awful lot of the stuff that they were painting out, guys, is not on the surface of the moon at all. It's hanging in the remnants of this incredible glass grid extending miles above the moon, a matrix which has remained after meteor abrasion and bombardment over. God knows how many millions of years. And the only reason the astronauts made it down and back successfully is because it's so thin now, it's about the consistency of cigarette smoke. But when you look through it over hundreds or thousands of miles, it's optically, optically dense enough that you can even photograph it from Earth. And I have a surprise for you guys. I have some photographs we'll get to in the third hour where I'm going to show you how amateur astronomers now, just ordinary bright folks with celestrons, are taking pictures of these ancient glass domes that cannot be airbrushed out, cannot be erased, and corroborate everything you guys saw and are seeing. Brett? Okay, yes, um, that, that's exactly true. And uh, I took this image that Donna gave me and I showed it to Ken. And, and Ken, Ken said, would you like to see the next one in the series? <laughs> and I, I felt like crying, you know? From his I, private he, saved archive. 
from his private saved archive, which I knew existed, even though it was kind of a ghost archive. Kept online, separate you know? from NASA for 30 plus years. No little fingerprints of NASA on these pictures. Well, yeah, we got into a Dropbox and he started uploading his entire archive up online. So you I didn't understand who Ken was yeah. up until that point. He was just another guy in the crowd, a part of the Facebook group, part of your conversation. And then he says, would you like to see, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest oh. of the story? Yes, exactly right. So, you know, I, I had it. I was like, oh, what do I do next? You know, so it, after panicking and and. Uh, a little bit of tearing up and um, looking at, at one image after another that he's that he's sending to me. I'm getting nervous because he's sending so many of them. You know, um, I I didn't realize his his archive. He had saved so many of them. You know, so he started. Um, he said, "Okay, let's start out with Apollo 8. and he just kept going and going and going. You know, <laughs> and it, most of most of the images he had was while he was working there. You know, Apollo 11 and 12 and so on. And, you know, I, I, I saw, um, I remember seeing the, the video of him talking about the domes and all that. And I didn't realize the magnitude of what he was showing me until he, he showed me this one image um, that, that was Apollo 12, I believe. And in the background on the horizon, he, he said, Did, do you notice something? There, it's not a blackened background. And they just started painting it black. And this, this background um, on the horizon was actually structures and rectilinear lines that, that looked like a half of a, a pentagon. Interesting. And it, it's so, I'll show you that later, Richard. It's so cool. And it, it, there's actually blocks um, on the horizon that are completely squared off, um, like, like someone took a T-square and squared it off. I mean, it's, it's that literal, you know. Okay, we're, we're coming up to a break, and what I'm going to do while we're in the break is I'm going to upload to Kintia a couple of images that Ken loaned me that we scan, and I'm going to show you stunningly what's on these 30-plus, actually now it's my, what, 40-year-old 40 images that are stored separately from NASA, which so confirms, again, everything you're saying. Guys, no, oh, oh yeah, we're good. I'm here. Yeah. I want to give give credit to my mother on this here, Richard, because she always told me if you had something that you thought was very important, you should save it because someday it may be important to someone else. And so that's where I maybe I'm a pack rat, maybe not, but at least I had that kind of guidance to begin with. Is why I kept all of that oh, archive. Oh my god! Up. So that's why. Okay, I, I, hold it there. <laughs> We're at the top, uh, top, yeah, top of the hour. I'm confused here. Too many clocks, too many screens. My guests this morning are Ken Johnson, who was a NASA test astronaut. He actually taught Leo uh, Armstrong how to work with the lunar module in a vacuum chamber out in Bethpage, Long Island, in uh, at, at Grumman. And Brett Shepard, who's a citizen scientist who has an extraordinarily interesting background and who wound up looking at the moon and realizing, like a lot of us have now, it's not exactly your old grandmother's moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.